welcome to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts from around the globe and around all aspects of drugs and addiction. Today's episode is sponsored by Isaac, the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis. Visit their website at isaacone.org, I-A-S-I-C-1.org, to follow the science on marijuana. Friends, fentanyl is plaguing America. There is no safe drug supply unless it comes from a legal pharmacy. If you are around anyone who may be using drugs, you should carry naloxone, the opioid reversal agent. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. Come visit me on hightruths.com to learn more about the show, submit a question, or download a free prescription for naloxone. Hello again, High Truth listeners. Get ready for a healthy conversation. I'm your host, Dr. Ronit Lev. What is healthy and what isn't? I recently treated a 56-year-old man with dizziness and weakness. He had arthritis and was using CBD oils. He told me he paid $100 for the CBD. And the problem is that his CBD interacted with his Lyrica and other medications he was taking. So many people do their best to be healthy and make accidental bad mistakes. They get medical advice from family, friends, and social media. There's a lot of profit to be made, and it is hard to get to the truth and to the science. So where should people go to separate science and false and fraudulent health claims? I have three tips for you. One is the FDA label. Two is the USP seal. And three is drugs.com. If you want to know about your herbals or medications, this is where you can go to get reliable science, evidence-based advice. The FDA, they do research about side effects, risk-benefit profiles before any drug that it's approved. It's a very rigorous process. You want to know if CBD is healthy? Read the FDA label for Epidiolox, the FDA-approved version of CBD. Want to know if marijuana is healthy? Read the FDA label for Marinol, the FDA-approved formulation for THC. Number two, the USP seal. The seal is a voluntary standard that is available for dietary supplements. I need vitamin D and I'll only buy vitamin D that has the USP seal. So I am guaranteed that the bottle really has 5,000 international units and no arsenic or heavy metals or whatever other contaminants may be at present. And number three, drugs.com. If you take prescription medications, check for drug interactions. Your pharmacist and often your doctor does not know about your various supplements. Check medications yourself with these supplements and make sure you're not inadvertently causing harm to yourself as my patient was. And with that, let's hear our question of the day. Hello, my name is Melissa Cunningham and I work for Health Quality Partners of Southern California. Health Quality Partners, or HQP for short, helps improve health outcomes by implementing progressive and collaborative programs to support community health centers in caring for the safety net population. These programs include treatment and prevention of addiction. Thank you, Dr. Love, for doing a presentation on fentanyl and xylazine to our medical professionals. The question I have is about CBD. Many patients and people use CBD in oils and creams. I was surprised to learn that this is not always safe. What are some complications of using CBD? Thank you, Melissa, for your question and for inviting me to speak to health quality partners. There is a big hype on xylazine, but I think it's something the medical community can handle and does not increase the total mortality of drugs. The key is prevention and treatment of substance use disorder, specifically opioids and methamphetamines. And upstream from opioids and meth, and xylazine is marijuana. I've never met a patient who's addicted to opioids or meth that did not start their journey to drugs without marijuana. To answer your question on CBD, I have a world-renowned expert on the drug, Dr. Jennifer Trimstraw, also known as Tree. She is a senior manager of the cannabinoid education for 
Greenwich Biosciences. She provided scientific support to develop Epidiolex. Epidiolex is pure CBD or cannabidiol that is FDA approved for the treatment of a very rare subset of seizures. As a neuroscientist working with the pharmaceutical industry, she is a world leader on the body's cannabinoid receptor system. To learn more about Dr. Jennifer Trimstraw and the cannabinoid system, check out the High Truth show notes. Tree, Dr. Trimstraw, welcome to High Truths. Thanks. Hi, nice Hi. to meet you. To see you, Dr. Love. Good to see you again. We get to see each other again. Last time we met was at the United Nations. How cool mm-hmm. is that? Super but cool. uh, we'll talk about that. I, I want our listeners to get to know you and how you became a cannabinoid expert. Yeah, so uh, my background is I am, a, a, as I always like to say, a nerdy neuroscientist. I've been doing science for a number of years, and it was about seven years ago that I got hired and started to work with GW Pharmaceuticals. Uh, they were at the time the world leaders in developing uh, therapeutics based off or coming from the cannabinoid plant, so cannabis-derived therapeutics. And um, so about seven years ago, I joined their U.S. team. I'm based here in the U.S. and I uh, have been working since. Of course, subsequently now, uh, GW was acquired by Jazz Pharmaceuticals, and Jazz is continuing to carry uh, that the torch forward of, of deriving therapeutics from the cannabis plant. Very cool. And we met at the United Nations in Vienna and uh, I saw you and you had presentations with cool Mm -hmm. graphics. And I thought I need to get to know this uh, nerdy scientist better. (laughs) So tell us, what what were you doing at the United Nations? Yeah, great question. So a really great honor, humbled honor to be able to be uh, invited as a guest speaker for an NGO called the CADFI. That's their acronym. It's the Community Alliance for Drug-Free Youth. And Um, NGO means... A non-government organization, non-governmental organization. So they are an entity that's allowed to come in and uh, work within the UN. I'm not an expert in NGOs, so I'm not going to try to explain all of that. But uh, by all means, uh, they're just a, a, a voting body and helps to advise, as far as I understand, help to advise uh, the UN, especially what we were there for, which is the Commission on Narcotic Drugs. Um, and I was brought in as a guest speaker uh, with, with CADFI. And uh, really, my role there was to highlight the importance of medical research for cannabis-derived products, uh, oh. and that research with these cannabis-derived products really helps inform drug manufacturing practices, uh, marketing, as well as product labeling. Uh, and of course, that's the work that we do at Jazz, is that we we work really hard to go through all of those levels of the scientific evidence. We call that a pyramid of evidence. And we really work our way through there to get to that top level, the large randomized controlled trials. And all of that data that we gather, that's what goes into the to our regulatory bodies to seek approval for a product. Interesting. Very different than saying, you know, my cousin used this and it right. really solved their pain. Uh, right. When we say research, it's not the research that, yeah, my cousin, uh, you know, uh, this worked for them. It's research, randomized control studies that take right. into account risk benefits, the whole package. That's right. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yep. So it's... Uh, and it's not that that didn't work for the cousin, you know, example you're, you're, you're giving there. It's more that that's the work that needs to get published. Those are the case reports that need to get published. So uh, we work a lot with a lot of medical providers uh, to run clinical trials and to make sure that we are removing any bias with that placebo control. Uh, also making sure that we have a, a large number in the trial so we can remove uh, the bias as well of, you know, the placebo control can, can be real. So uh, long story short, all of it there, as you said, what's the benefit, but also what are some risks we want to be thinking about so that healthcare providers like yourself uh, know how to work with that, with this, uh, this cannabis derived medicine. And that's absolutely right. Tree, I count on you to be that gold standard to make sure that things are safe for my patients. I can't go by what, you know, somebody worked for them, um, you know, on occasion. So um, you are a, uh, like you said, described yourself a nerdy scientist, but a, a cannabinoid science expert, a world expert invited to the United <laughs> Nations. So can you please teach us about cannabinoid science? Sure. Uh, that's a bit of a big lift for me to be a world expert. I would say that I've been on the world stage, but that there are people that uh, that I've 
garnered information from that are absolute experts out there. So I'm humbled uh, to be a voice for folks like you and for the, for your listeners to kind of garner a better learning and understanding of what is cannabinoid science. Um, and really, well, we don't have a lot of time in cannabinoid science researchers take years to develop uh, their expertise. But just in the few minutes that we have here, it is nice to kind of garner some foundational information, right? Um, so uh, one thing we always like to say is that, you know, cannabis and cannabinoids are quite different. And uh, what also stems from that, though, is that they're really popular today. Uh, you can kind of see them everywhere. Everyone's kind of selling them or trying to, to commoditize them. And so with all the debate, the advocacy, there's also can be a lot of bit of misinformation. So where I always start is I start with cannabis and cannabinoid are different. And it sounds so simple. And I hope people on this call or listening to this podcast go, oh, yeah, that's that's really, really simple. I don't know what cannabis and cannabinoid. I know they're different. But when you go to like the, the Google sphere and you start looking at things, you start to see that actually it gets kind of convoluted and mixed together. So what I always like to say is and just kind of ground people in, you know, cannabis is the common name for the plant cannabis sativa L. Cannabinoids is the shortened for cannabinoids, phytocannabinoids, uh, and these are the ones that are, are pulled, the molecules that are pulled from the cannabis plant. So when you're talking about the cannabis and cannabinoids, cannabinoids also can be a little bit more complex. I know nothing's easy, nothing's straightforward. But cannabinoids, there's actually three main sources of cannabinoids. The first one, of course, is phytocannabinoids coming from the plant, phyto, it means plant. And then there's endocannabinoids. And endo, it means like, um, you know, internal, endogenous. So these are these, these uh, molecules and, and, and ligands that are inside of our body that are doing a bunch of work and it's for, you know, homeostasis. The third one is synthetic cannabinoids. And these are lab-derived molecules that are, are derived to, to mimic either the actions of the phytocannabinoids or the endocannabinoids. So altogether, three main sources. And if you, if you get the cannabis, it's not the same as cannabinoids, and you get the cannabinoids, it's phyto, endo, and synthetic, you're really on your way to be able to discern uh, what's going on out there and what's happening in the cannabinoid sciences. So phytocannabinoids are coming from the cannabis plant, endocannabinoids are coming from your body, and synthetic cannabinoids are coming from a lab. Is that right? That's right. Yep. That's the best kind of a good way to think of it. That's right. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yep. Great. Yep. So what about the whole endocannabinoid system of our body? Because people say, oh, this plant yep. is natural, this phytocannabinoid is natural, and it works naturally in your endocannabinoid system that we just recently discovered in, in our brains. That's right. Yeah. So the endocannabinoid system is throughout your entire body. You have it right now. You listening to me, Dr. Love, you have it working uh, on high speed, creating homeostasis. That's what we believe the endocannabinoid system is doing, is that it is there to create homeostasis in your body. Now, the endocannabinoid system, as you noted, is still kind of new. It isn't something that has been around for hundreds of years, and we have all the discoveries in it. It was just recently discovered, actually, in the 1990s. Now, for some of us of some age groups, that's still pretty young. For some people, maybe that seems like a long, long time ago. But the 90s isn't that long ago when it comes to science. This is a, still a new burgeoning science. There's a lot of discoveries to be made about the endocannabinoid system. But let me give you a little brief, like a little brief look at what the endocannabinoid system is. So the two most well-known receptors in the endocannabinoid system that have been discovered are cannabinoid receptor one and cannabinoid receptor two. Very simple to keep track of. Now, there are also the two major ligands that have been studied. Remember these, these molecules that are made, these endocannabinoids made in our body. The two most well-known are 2-AG and AEA. So 2-AG is 2-arachidinoglycerol. I won't, won't spell it out for you. It's kind of a long word. And then uh, AEA, which is anandamide. Those are two most well-known ligands or, or molecules that attach to these receptors, CB1 and CB2. Now, these molecules, these ligands, are, are, are derived and also uh, uh, degraded and metabolized at their site of action. They can also be flowing around in the body, but it's a very meticulous system that is very well-tuned to work in your body. Um, there is some uh, research or literature out there that says, hey, if the endocannabinoid, in some syndromes, the endocannabinoid system is a little bit off. That's what's causing this syndrome. But all of that data is really preliminary. We're just starting to tap into the endocannabinoid system. We've just really defined it. We're also learning that it's not just two receptors, not just CB1, CB2. These endocannabinoids could be going elsewhere. We're learning more about these enzymes and what they do. And, and so there's just so much, it's, it's more complex than, than you may think. So when you know your endogenous system 
is pretty meticulously timed like a really well-round watch and then you kind of sledgehammer these exogenous cannabinoids in that may or may not work and so there's still so much more to learn so i i hear what you're saying dr lev you see where people say oh your endocannabinoid system is broken or it's off so we're just gonna give you a bunch of exogenous cannabinoids and that's gonna fix it and that's just has not played out yet we just don't know we don't know if it's helping but we and we don't know if it's hurting we just don't know right now Right. And it's very complicated. I could tell you when I took my addiction medicine boards, that section about receptors was the hardest one about all the different receptors and chemicals and agonists and, and yep, ligands. Right. And it's way, way, way more complicated than what you're saying, but you do a really an amazing job at explaining. <laughs> it, Thank it, you. it fits yeah. my level. <laughs> well, hopefully your listeners do, or it's just, it is, it can be right. but there's more to come in this endocannabinoid system. And there's more to come with understanding the interplay of phytocannabinoids and endocannabinoid system. So I think uh, if, if you're someone who likes to nerd out in science, as I do, uh, definitely keep reading. I think there's opportunities to read and learn more as more scientists make discoveries. Uh, but again, a lot of it's really at that preclinical level where a lot of the research is being done. Right. So we know the two main cannabinoids that people are familiar with in the cannabis plant is THC and CBD. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. can you explain the difference between them? Right. Yeah. So there's a lot that CBD and THC have in common. If you look at them on a molecular basis, there's only really a difference of one um, uh, hydrogen bond that separates them. But that little bit of a difference makes a world of difference in how they act in the body. So uh, so the major difference between CBD and THC is the affinity to the cannabinoid receptors. So you recall, I was talking about endocannabinoids, the cannabinoid receptors, CB1 and CB2. So CBD has a very low affinity to bind to these receptors. Um, in fact, it, it, is, it does what's called the negative allosteric uh, modulation. So in other words, it doesn't go in, it doesn't like to be in that receptor, it likes to kind of play other areas. THC loves that those receptors and binds right in and has a, a higher affinity and that's where we get that association of, of getting high or the euphoric effects that we associate with cannabis or marijuana. It's the THC and how THC binds to that, those cannabinoid receptors. And why when we talk about CBD being uh, you know, non-euphoric, uh, it's because CBD doesn't attach in there. It doesn't create that, that same system. Um, so, And what's also important to know is that uh, the other thing that these two molecules have in common is that both have an FDA-approved formulation. So Again, talking about what the work that we do, we want to build a period of evidence, you want to get the large randomized controlled trials, you want to get regulatory review. Um, there is a, a plant-derived CBD formulation, so and that is approved by the FDA. And there's also three synthetic uh, FDA-approved THC formulations. And of course, we covered already the, the, the types of, of cannabinoids you can have, phyto, endo, and synthetic. There's actually three synthetic uh, cannabinoids. Those are THC analogs that are approved by the FDA for prescription uh, by medical providers. Can you can you name them? Are you... Oh yeah, well the CBD one is is Epidiolex, and that is uh, that's the one that our company makes, and that is approved for uh, seizures associated with Lennox-Gastaut, Gervais syndrome, and tuberous sclerosis complex. The THC is uh, Dronabinol and Nabilone, and those are uh, Sesamit and uh, Syndros. And I'm mixing the third name, so I apologize to the company. Um, but those are approved for uh, treatment for nausea associated with chemotherapy and also for uh, to simulate appetite in folks that are going through AIDS wasting. Right. So right now, if I wanted to write a prescription grade um, to any one of my patients for CBD or THC, I can do that. I could write a prescription for Marinol, which is usually what I do, Dronabinol. Oh, you do? Um, yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah. All right. I mean, I really don't because I'm an ER doctor, but if I needed to, if mm -hmm. I like change my practice modality, there's no reason an ER doctor needs to prescribe THC. But, but, but there, but if, you know, if I was a, a cancer doctor, an AIDS doctor, um, and frankly, we, we kind of solved the HIV problem where we don't see AIDS wasting syndrome anymore, but at one point we were, mm. and, we were and we were prescribing uh, Maradon, or if I had this very, very rare, people think, I think the public hears one thing. They hear CBD and seizure, and they think, okay, this is good for my seizures, but, mm. but that's not, uh, and that's really the problem that I see in the emergency department. People are coming in the emergency department taking marijuana for their seizures. And it's like, no, this is for babies with very rare metabolic, you know, um, abnormalities that are causing these seizures. And mm -hmm. for that very small, subset of children, CBD is helpful. And we have 
you know, mm -hmm. pharmaceutical grade um, mm -hmm. epidiolects. These little babies are not smoking pot. Yeah, that's right. And, and I will preface that and, you know, make sure it's clear that Jazz is not working with THC. Uh, those are those are different from our company. Uh, and so and I'm not here to discuss, you know, how, how to use our product, our drug product uh, at all. But um, yeah, so it's and, but I think what you're getting at, though, is the essence of if it's an FDA approved formulation, whether it's THC, CBD or it's um, I don't know, Lipitor or Warfarin, uh, right. these, these medicines have a specific formulation that has been standardized and there's a label that go with it. There's clinical trials to back it so that a provider like you can really know what the data is and be able to, you know, understand, does this benefit a specific patient population? Is this something my patient should be taking? But also, can I mitigate any possible risks or side effects that could come from this medicine? And, and you would know better than anyone. That's something you have to watch out for when you're working with patients. So when people are out there saying, oh, I'm going to dabble a little, I'm going to try a little, I'm going to do this. You know, it's, it's your right, it's your freedoms, but it's one of those where just, just be cautious. But what I always tell anyone is talk to your healthcare provider. Do not go out there blank. Do not taking the advice from someone who works at a nutritional food store about how to dose and what this is going to do for you. Uh, that that's just advice. The the experts are, are the folks like you, Dr. Love that are, that are in the clinic who can then work with that, that patient or the caregivers to decide best, what's the next best you know, treatment uh, decision when it comes to taking any sort of, 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 of a product or a drug or a medicine. All right, and that's absolutely so important. And one of the things I kind of want to ask your opinion of, one of the things that we see every single day in the emergency department is cases of scrometing, screaming, mm. vomiting. Um, it's another word for cannabis hyperemesis syndrome. And these are patients who didn't just use on a one occasion. They are people who have been chronically using for, for years. And the theory behind why that's happening is an inundation of THC on the mm. cannabinoid receptor causing malfunction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we've seen that clinically in the past is with the opioid prescription epidemic where people were prescribed really crazy doses of opioids over a long period of time and they developed opioid hyperalgesia where even mm. touching them with my stethoscope would cause horrible pain. And it's now mm. I'm seeing this phenomenon. So mm -hmm. is, is that theory, I know we, we don't know for sure, but that seems to be the the theory behind cannabis hyperemesis syndrome. I, I I can't I can't speak to that. I don't know. We don't do any work in that. Yeah. Um, I definitely think it's a it's a, a crucial issue that I've I've heard other uh, I've been at conferences where other emergency room clinicians have mentioned this and and trying to work with it. But we I don't have any expertise in that, and neither does does our company knows just jazz. So I would be interested to see how what the folks that are looking at it to see what comes. But I actually don't know. I don't know much about it. Interesting, but it mm -hmm. probably has to do with the complexity of the cannabinoid system that you're that we have. Not yeah, well, that's the, one of the theories is that it's, it has to do with the endocannabinoid system. And, and the, again, the, again, as I talked about the endocannabinoid system and then exogenous cannabinoids coming in and kind of they, they, the exogenous cannabinoids that we do know in cannabinoid science is that cannabinoids don't go to just one or two receptors. They actually kind of go to many receptors. And so when you have a purified product uh, or you have a complex botanical, so if you've purified active pharmaceutical ingredient, where it's just one major molecule in there that should be should be at play, uh, or if you have a complex botanical where there can be active and inactive materials, the important thing is is that when you're making it for FDA approval, it has to be consistent every time. We and we call it the fingerprints, a mass spectrometer reading little 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 spikes in there. And it has to be consistent every time, and we call it its fingerprint. Uh, but what, what can happen, though, is that when you don't have regulated manufacturing, you don't have the stringent you know, in, in inspections that we always have uh, with the regulatory bodies, uh, you know, it, it can drift a bit. Uh, manufacturers can drift, products can drift a bit. Uh, who's there to make sure they're staying, you know, within their certain uh, manufacturing profile? And and so that's where you get so much variability in how people will say, well, one time I took it and it was good. And the other time I took it and, and, it, and it wasn't. The hypothesis that's being driven with that is that it's that the products are off. That, that's what's happening. It's not whether or not it can work. It's whether or not the product can be consistent. And that's yeah. the great thing about the FDA pathway. It has to be the same. We, we can't drift. Otherwise, it gets pulled off the shelf. And that, that's, not, that's not just our product. That's any products that are out there. I'm sure you work with other medical products. You don't want to be guessing how much 
you know, Tylenol is in, is in this, this package. You need to know this on the label is exactly what it is. And that's the importance of the FDA oversight when it comes to medicines. That's really what's important there. Yeah. And that's so important without that, our whole medical system would collapse. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Kind of comes a wild, wild west then. (laughs) So I know how to work with it. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's talk hemp. Um, What what is hemp and hemp products? Yeah, very popular conversation when it comes to talking about cannabis and is what is hemp. So it's really important to recognize first off, just the word hemp. Let's talk about terminology. So we talked a bit about cannabis and cannabinoid and let's get level set and what those are. But let's talk a little bit about about what hemp is. So hemp is actually a legal term. So it's a federal, it's a it's a federally defined term, and it's defined as um, uh, uh, cannabis and its derivatives that contain less than 0.3 percent delta nine THC. Now this was originally defined in 2014 during the Agriculture Improvement Act. And the purpose of that definition in 2014 was to to really separate and say, listen, not all cannabis is the same. There's cannabis, that's marijuana. And marijuana is the cannabis and derivatives that contain more than 0.3% delta-9 THC. And hemp is then defined as having less than 0.3% delta-9 THC. The great thing was that they wanted that then to say, okay, now let's let's allow then folks to, to start using hemp as an agricultural product. This is the Farm Bill. This is the Agriculture Improvement Act where they had this first definition. Fast forward four years and in 2018, they then said, okay, we're now going to more, more greatly incentivize the use of hemp. We're actually going to remove it from any sort of scheduling. So cannabis as a whole had been up to 2018, a schedule one substance, no matter what kind of formulation it was considered schedule one and schedule one is the most restrictive, right? So they said, no, we're going to remove hemp out because hemp's a different definition. And we're going to make this a descheduled product. Marijuana stays schedule one, marijuana being more than 0.3% THC. But uh, we're going to move hemp down. And that was then to incentivize not only for agricultural use, but also for research use. They said, okay, let's let's make sure you can use it for research. The thing was, though, is when that was signed, the next day, the FDA came out and said, you know, basically, and I'm absolutely paraphrasing here, but basically, you know, we appreciate that this is now descheduled, but that doesn't make it legal to put into food or to put into drugs or to call it medicine. Because FDA, the food drug, um, uh, association agency. They they are the ones that have, have oversight over food and drugs. This hemp wasn't meant to go into food. It was meant to be used for research. It's meant to be for you know, agriculture purposes. Uh, and and then the next step would be you know does it go into food? Long story short, we're still at the same crossroads. It's 2023, and we're still at the same crossroads of what is hemp? What's hemp doing out there? What does this all mean? And, uh, you know, we're seeing things, uh, all kinds of different hemp products from everywhere from, you know, gas stations to dispensaries to online. And a lot of consumers are just kind of scratching their heads as to what does this mean if it's next to next to my bread and my grocery store isn't this something that's being, there's a lot of oversight for and there actually isn't. Uh, it's a bit of a, a, a unknown that's, that's out there right now. Yeah, I think Congress um, tried to play doctor <laughs> or uh, <laughs> um, and didn't do a good job of it because... Um, their definition was lax. They said anything mm. that is less than um, 0.3% Delta 9 THC. That's right. Yeah, and, that's right. right. And so what the industry said, oh, Delta 9, okay, yeah. I'll get make some Delta 8s and Delta yeah. 10s and they're synthetic. They're not from a lab and they're being sold everywhere, um, you know, uh, you know, following the law, but that's because of the law has failed. And now what yeah people are exposed to these products that have not even been tested, not even in rats. Yeah. yeah. It's a human experiment. It it does feel like that, doesn't it? And I actually just came out, came back from a a recent uh, cannabis, a cannabinoid science conference. And, and they were talking about Delta eight and the research they're doing, and they're even still, you know, figuring out it's different, you know, molecular uh, um, structures and what it's doing in animal models. uh, Say anything now we have humans kind of, it's kind of a human experiment. Um, you know, one thing I think is a good good to recognize is that uh, you know Delta eight and Delta Delta ten are very popular right now for exactly what you said. There was a loophole in the law. The law defined Delta nine THC. It didn't call out Delta eight, Delta ten. And that's because a lot of policymakers didn't know that it was possible to that there would be these different you know THC isomers that you can be making. Um, and what's what's important there too to recognize is that. Delta and Delta 10, as far as I understand, I'm not a plant biologist, I'm I'm more on the neuroscience side, but as far as I understand, 
They can be found naturally in the cannabis plant, but it's at very, very low concentrations. So it would just be at a level that someone couldn't just put into a bottle and say, and package it and say, listen, we have Delta THC in here. So what what a lot of uh, uh, manufacturers are doing is they're actually themselves synthetically deriving Delta-8. And it sounds so crazy, but they're taking plant-derived CBD and they're they're adding, um, they're doing a chemical process to it to convert that molecular structure so that it becomes a Delta-8 THC. Um, and it, and it, it, I can't dive into all the science, I'm not an expert in it, but there, there are papers out there that talk about it. And so it basically becomes like a synthetically derived Delta-8 or Delta-10 THC. And that's how they can get a larger concentration or quantity to then put into their products. Uh, that's at least the understanding that I have, have read from papers that I've read, so. Right, and and the FDA, you know, put a warning about that. And that's right. in a webinar that I attended, they pretty much said, that if you're buying Delta eight, Delta 10, you're not buying plant material. You're, 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 there's not enough plant material out there to, to, to have this type of market. Um, yeah, that that's my understanding as well. Yeah. And again, jazz, we're not working with Delta eight THC at all or Delta 10. So uh, I don't, I'm not really, uh, so we're not experts at all in how this is being done. Again, this is just me letting you know what I've read uh, in, in some papers and what have you. And, and uh, it is, it's pretty fascinating that they kind of do this in their, in their labs, but it's also a bit terrifying. That they can well, do people this died. put it out there. They're, they're, they're kids who've died from taking their own. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yes. So it's, yeah, it is fascinating in a science perspective, mm-hmm. but but it's got a human toll, which is right. not, you know, very sad. Um, um, and uh, little consumer protections out there. It's interesting that you said none of this is allowed to be in food. And yet you'll go to many right. restaurants uh, and have hemp seeds. That's right. uh, ordered. So are those hemp seeds illegal? Are they? No, that's a great question. That lot of, and, and even hemp powder, like protein powder or hemp mm-hmm. oil. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, all of that is, is actually legal. And that is allowed to be in the food when it comes to hemp oil or hemp seeds, because the seeds themselves don't actually contain phytocannabinoids. So little plant biology, little plant biology, they do know. So the phytocannabinoids are found in the flowering part of the female cannabis plant. So cannabis sativa L, there's a male and a female plant. The female has these big, beautiful flowers. Usually what you, when you see a picture of like the buds or what have you, uh, that's what you're thinking of. And that's the flower. Uh, when it has all these sticky trichomes around it and inside of there, are all of those uh, phytocannabinoids are in there. Um, and so, and also terpenes, which gives it that smell. Uh, people associate the aroma smell of, of cannabis plants. So those are the females. And uh, when they breed, they get pollinated, just like a lot of other plants that we see, the flower will then recede. And then they'll put all their energy into making the seeds. Well, if the flower recedes, that means the trichomes recede. That means that there isn't going to be phytocannabinoids anymore. So you know, hemp seeds are de- devoid of, uh, of cannabinoids, of phytocannabinoids. And uh, so uh, so health benefits of, of hemp seeds or whatever, I'm not a nutritionist, you know, nutritionists and dietitians can tell you that. Um, but the fact, but the point is, and what's important to know is that there won't be, there shouldn't be phytocannabinoids in there. But when people say that they have hemp CBD, if you look at the label, they may take hemp seed oil and then dilute CBD in there because CBD, uh, all cannabinoids are hydrophobic. In other words, they hate water. They don't like it. Uh, they, they like water. They, 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 got, they like uh, alcohols and lipids. So they like to dissolve in oils. So a great way is to get a concentration of CBDs and put it into hemp seed oil. And then you have, uh, you know, it's kind of a way of using the plant. But, um, but long story short, seeds don't contain phytocannabinoids. Uh, so uh, you have to be, be mindful of that. Put it on your salads, I guess, if that's what you enjoy to eat. Uh, but, but it wouldn't be containing enough of any phytocannabinoids to, to be um, detectable. Right. Or not be afraid that if someone gave you hemp seeds, you're not going to test positive for THC in your federal, you know, drug employment. As long as the labeling's correct and no one has adulterated the seeds, as far as I understand, you know, that would be, that would be a, a, there shouldn't be THC or CBD or any other phytocannabinoids inside those seeds. Mm -hmm. Interesting. All right. We talked a little about the importance of the the FDA and the difference, but maybe you can elaborate about having the difference of the FDA. Like you work for a pharmaceutical company and it takes, you know, know, years, months, you know, uh, beams of paper. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully we're mostly digital. So we're not going through too much paper these days. Right. uh, Uh, 
but yeah, to, to get a, a approval of a medication. And I yeah. think Epidiolex was even fast-tracked because there were these babies with Dravet syndromes who would benefit from this medication. So yeah. tell us about the importance and what goes into that. Sure. So um, so the FDA approval pathway really requires standards and, and standardizing of from from you know basically what we would say like seed or clone to final product uh, when we're working with the cannabis plant. So it's the standardization of the manufacturing of medicines and then the testing of the medicines to prove the level of efficacy for a specific disease or syndrome. Uh, and what you were mentioning, you know, you were kind of keep mentioning, kind of alluding to our indication that we have. And it's important to know is that when we when we study these or when anyone studies these in a patient population, you don't just go for one age group. You don't just go for one sex. We want to have males and females. You want to have uh, you know multi-race. You want to have multi-age uh, groups um, because you, you want to recognize that this could be prescribed in pediatric. This could be prescribed in adults. And so you have a whole array of, of, uh, of patients that could be uh, coming into that clinical trial. Um, but not only are we looking for, you know, is it standardized as far as manufacturing? Is it standardized as far as does it even work in this disease state syndrome or syndrome? Uh, you also want to uh, define any potential safety risks for that medicine. That's uh, so what we call adverse effects. So uh, to put it simply, the drug approval pathway uncovers the benefits versus the risks of a medicine. The, the whole sloth of data that we have, because uh, the data that happens to the FDA, everything comes from um, the drug discovery uh, through to preliminary preclinical testing, kind of the cell lines up to animal testing, then goes into phase one, which is healthy human, phase two, which is uh, subjects who, who may have the, have, the, um, who have the syndrome, but it's maybe a small cohort just to say, hey, we know it's safe for humans to consume, but in order to take this medicine, does it even work uh, in this disease state of the syndrome? And then if you get a signal, then you're like, yep, let's yep. do it. And that's when you have the large randomized control trial where you have hundreds to thousands of people that are in these trials uh, in a placebo controlled uh, you know, uh, uh, situation. All of that data, not just one, one trial, the entirety of the data gets sent to the FDA. And then they have their experts review it um, and give their decision as to whether or not it's approved. Here's the important thing. If a drug is approved, a label is written, the FDA writes a label that goes with it because they've read all the data and they say, this is what will be inside and the package insert so that a clinician or a patient, if you, you guys can go home right now, open up a bottle and look at, there's a whole thing in there. And my kiddos take, uh, you know, children's, uh, you know, Tylenol or Advil, and I can pull it out and I can read the whole package insert as to what to expect with this thing. And that's written by the FDA so that you have all the information you need to use this safely, as safe as possible, and be able to you know, recognize any potential risks. But the FDA doesn't stop there. So even when we were approved, you were product approved, the FDA still monitors. They still keep an eye out on this. And so there's a continuing regulatory overview, which is really important. And uh, that's something that you just can't get unless you're in the FDA uh, regulatory pathway. Um, and so we often say is that, uh, you know, you, you, we put our hands, you can't put our hands on our heart and say, oh, trust us. We've done all the proper manufacturing with our, with our cannabis plants and growing them and then harvesting you know, all the proper work as far as producing, uh, you know, uh, the isolated cannabinoids or the complex botanical product. Uh, you don't need to look anymore. We're fine. Uh, that's just not true. And, and it, they don't, they don't take our word for it. They come in, they sample, they read our records, they look at everything. There's actually quite a bit of oversight. And that's what you need when you make it, when you make a, a medicine from a, a really complex plant, like the cannabis plant. Um, it's, it's, it, cannabis plants, it's just like any plant you have in your garden. It, it can be, it, it, it ebbs and flows based on the environment. Um, it, it can be affected by humidity. It can be affected by temperature, sunlight. Um, it also, one unique thing about the cannabis plant, I know Dr. Love, you and I talked about this when we were at the UN, is, is that it's, it's effective bioaccumulator and phytoremediator. And what that means is that it's a phytoremediator and that it'll suck things out of the soil. And a lot of plants do this. This is not something new. Uh, you'll see a lot of farmers will rotate their crops because they want some things being leached out of the soil and they want to, uh, you know, kind of you know, rotate them through to, to help enrich the soil. Well, cannabis plant is too. It's a phytoremediator. But the unique thing about it is it's a bioaccumulator. And what that means is that it, that it takes whatever's in the soil, whatever toxins are in the soil, in the air, in the water, it takes it in and it holds it in. It kind of stores it, accumulates it. And this is something that's been used for a number of years, whether it be to clean soils around riverbeds, 
But one thing, one place it was used was, was in, the, in the 80s uh, when the Chernobyl uh, nuclear power plant had this meltdown. They planted these cannabis plants, these big industrial hemp plants around uh, to do the phytoremediation and bioaccumulation and clean up the toxins in the area. And then they then they could take the plant and dispose of the, the hazardous waste, the radiation waste. Um, so when you're, when you're making uh, a medicine or a product out of the cannabis plant, it doesn't lose that property. It doesn't remove bioaccumulation. It still has it. So that's why you really have to make sure that you're, you're making, you're growing the plant in a clean environment. You're testing for that clean environment all the way through. You're making a consistent product. You're testing that it's consistent all the way through. And then you can put it into clinical trial. And so there's a lot of steps to it, but it's worth it. And we've proven, our company's proven that this can be done. And so that's that's kind of what we what we would you you as a medical provider would ask of us is to do it to the letter, making sure it's done right. Uh, and that's what the FDA asks of us, too. And, and we agree. So that's the work that we do. Wow. It's, it's pretty scary about how the cannabis patent particularly sucks up and keeps and accumulates toxins. But uh um, yeah, I, I, it, 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 it is when it comes to products that aren't getting under under a lot of rigor. But again, I'll put on my nerdy scientist hat again because I love to do it. It's so fascinating that they can clean up all these different things. And I've read papers on this. And if anybody out there listening is is a kind of a plant nerd, I recommend reading about it, those properties. It's such a unique, interesting property that the cannabis plant has. But that does. But then I think back to our own work. Yeah, like, but it makes a, it you don't want complexity. I don't want to eat that, right? I don't want to no, eat I, those toxins. I don't know. I wouldn't want to. No, <laughs> I peel my apples. I don't really want. I don't want on that peeling of that apples. So I just want to be cautious about uh, about in consuming anything, knowing that it has that property. Yeah. Wow, uh, that's something new. Okay. Um, <laughs> so let's talk. We you know. So I understand the FDA scrutiny, mm-hmm. um, but if I uh, prescribe uh, CBD in the form of Epidiolex versus I buy CBD um, on the internet or health food store. What's the difference? Are, are, both are coming from a plant. Yeah, you know, that's a good way to kind of ground it, Dr. Love. Like they're both coming from the cannabis plant, right? And I've explained, you know, the, no matter how you're making it, you're going to have to go through all these steps. And, you know, the difference as far as FDA approved, I've kind of belabored already, which is that every single step is being watched by our, by the regulators, by the FDA, or if we're approved in other countries, that country's regulatory bodies are, are, are overseeing this as well. Um, when it comes to consumer products that are out there today, you know, the uniform, tightly controlled world of pharmaceutical products just doesn't really apply to commoditized products. Um, you know, the laws that are authorizing the use of, of these consumer-grade cannabis products for whether it be for medical use or for adult use, have really been changing rapidly, and it really it, it differs from state to state. Um, and and this this really kind of started. This is kind of a new thing. It started about twenty five years ago that this started to really come to fruition, where states basically just said we're going to do what we want to do, and and you know we don't we don't want we want to kind of go around what the federal government is saying. And the federal government's trying to get their hands around this and trying to help, but at the end of the day, states have rights to make their own laws. And uh, so depending on the state you're in and depending on, um, you know, how the states has developed their regulation depends on on what you're allowed to make, use, buy, whatever have you. So just a reminder, currently under federal law, marijuana, and marijuana is defined as a cannabis plant and its products that contain more than 0.3% Delta 9 THC, this still remains a Schedule One controlled substance under federal law. Therefore, federally, it is illegal to manufacture, dispense, prescribe, or possess under almost all circumstances at a federal level. But as I mentioned, states have advanced their own cannabis laws. Today, we're sitting at, uh, in 2023, we're sitting at where uh, 37 states have made the use of cannabis for medicinal purposes legal. 21 have legalized adult use or recreational use of cannabis. Um, And so despite the robust access, though, so whatever your state is allowing you to use, which, again, those policies can be changing, there is a lack of consistent testing and requirements. We often call this the patchwork, patchwork of regulation and a a patchwork of laws allowing access and a patchwork of laws that are regulating it. And it really kind of comes down to, you know, the not only the the authority to regulate tests and, and check the manufacturing of these products, but also the resources to do so. Um, so the way I often kind of think about it is that, you know, it's if I'm speeding down the highway and I'm it's I'm going 80 miles an hour and it's a, a 65 mile an hour zone, it doesn't mean the speed limit changed. It's still 65 miles an hour. 
and everyone around me is going 80 miles an hour or 85 or 90, that doesn't mean the law changed. It's still a speed limit set that change. But the, the fact of the matter is, is that there isn't a state trooper at every mile marker because we don't have the resources to monitor speed all the way down the interstate. So you can go 80 miles an hour. It's still breaking the law. The law hasn't changed. It's just that you haven't been caught. And that really is kind of where we are today is that the, the resources to enforce and to make sure, uh, you know, that things are being uh, monitored and, and looked at. The FDA just is kind of in a, in a in, they have their hand tied, hands tied because of the inability to really have the resources to do this. So it's just something we're not used to seeing in the medical field. This is not I, something I, I think our, our country has failed us in terms of consumer protection in these various edible products. Um, so sure. if you know what, if I, if I, prescribe epidiolex, I know what I'm getting, or dronabinol, I don't know yeah. what I'm getting, but my patients are coming to me and they're spending a lot of money. One patient told me he spent $100 on this CBD sure. oil. Sure. Um, and there's no consumer protection um, for for that. And in one study, various CBD products that were bought mm -hmm. um, from various um, areas, there have a huge contamination of heavy metals, mm -hmm. including mm -hmm. arsenic, um, you, when you buy something as expensive as it is, as beautiful as the package is, you don't know what's really in it. You don't know what you're buying. Yeah. And it, it astounds me because if you go to any store and you buy any food, we're so compulsive in our labeling, um, of food products, our labeling in, in, uh, you know, safety product and mattress safety, right? Right. Um, when, when we watch a movie, it's like, be careful. There'll be flashing light. Yeah. That's light. Right. And yet you can buy all these food products with no oversight that can cause mm -hmm. harm. Yeah. And, and again, I absolutely agree with you. I mean, if you just talk about food, if there's contamination of E. coli and romaine lettuce in California, you're not going to get a Caesar salad in Rhode Island. It's gone. All of it gets pulled from the market. Right. Yeah, what we see is that there's contamination, whether it be peer-reviewed journals like you're talking about. I know some of those studies that you're talking about, or even just newspaper headlines that are out there. Uh, they they're raising the red flag and you know, kind of sounding the alarm of hey, some of these products are dirty out there. And what also happens, which is a detriment to this whole industry, is that there's good actors out there. There's people that are, are trying to do this right, but they can't necessarily navigate their regulatory system to figure out what's the best way and to make sure and what are the incentives. And, and that's kind of where it comes to the FDA pathway. We may be the, the world leaders in really developing these therapeutics from the cannabis plant, but there's room for more. And it's just a matter of having those incentives that it's worth it to put the time and the money in to do it when you have a market out there that can kind of pitch their product for whatever they want to. Uh, and that, that tends, to, we're just kind of at, we're really, we're at a crossroads right now. And the FDA is at a crossroads with crossroads with how do we regulate this? What kind of regulation do we, what kind of enforcement do we need and how do we navigate this? And that leaves people like you and your patients really uh, in a kind of a buyer beware state when it comes to these products. Right. Um, well, one thing I recommend to my patients and, and I do myself is if I'm going to buy a supplement, um, not a prescription, like, you know, I have vitamin D deficiency, so I need to buy vitamin D. How do I mm. know that's a good vitamin D or not? I mm. go by the USP seal. So sure. th those are groups of um, herbal industry that has gone through a voluntary standard. Um, and I can mm. count on that USP seal that that vitamin D really has 5,000 international units. And I don't know, maybe you know, if CBD, if there's any CBD out there that has that USP seal. I, I do. I don't know. Uh, I know the U, U, USP is working towards that. Uh, I've seen their call for um, for input, um, but I don't. I don't know exactly how that's going or how they're doing it. And um, but I would say that both the FDA and the USP. Uh, you know, no one is sitting quietly on their hands uh, to, to kind of put it that way, that, that all these these regulatory bodies are are trying to step in and trying to work with it. It just almost feels like they're trying to put toothpaste back in a tube. Like it's just it's kind of the horse already left the barn, burnt the barn down. And now everyone's going, oh, boy, now what do we do? How do we do this? And yes. so I, I give them a lot of credit for trying to tackle it and support their efforts. You know, they, these are folks that are are doing the best they can. But um, no, I don't have any expertise as to where they sit right now. I don't know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So this was um, great science uh, education and discussion. Where can our listeners learn more? 
Yeah, I would say the one thing I always tell anyone I, I talked about at the beginning of our talk here is make sure you're talking to your healthcare provider. And if you're peer-to-peer, -peer, make sure you're talking to your peers as well. Uh, really kind of creating that opportunity to have an educated discussion. Healthcare providers are the best equipped to monitor for any unwanted effects. They understand what, what prescriptions you're currently on and what could possibly interact uh, and vice versa. So uh, potential indications of, of cannabinoids that, that could, you know, be in, in interactions that these cannabis could have with your other medicines. So please have that conversation with your healthcare provider. So many healthcare providers now are open to having that conversation too. So uh, please do. Um, with that said, my one of my jobs here at Jazz is to maintain our education website. So my role is I'm an associate medical director of cannabinoid education. And a website that we've developed is cannabinoidclinical.com. Highly recommend it. Uh, we've done uh, extensive work in really helping people kind of get the basics of the science. So something I was originally talking about, you know, the three different sources of cannabinoids, cannabis versus cannabinoid. We also talk a little bit about FDA versus non-FDA. So you don't have to memorize everything or keep re-listening to the podcast, although it might not, you know, it's kind of cool if people keep, keep listening to Dr. Love, uh, but you can go to cannabinoidclinical.com and you can just go in there and there's all kinds of pages and opportunity to watch videos. There's actually a little tour you can get to, to learn cannabinoid science 101. We also have a resources page that has glossaries. The most popular thing is a glossary of terms. And that's always so helpful when you're trying to have this conversation. Make sure we're talking about the same thing. Uh, you know, I, I talked about cannabis versus cannabinoid, but these definitions matter and this terminology matters. So let's make sure we're all having the, the same conversation. There's posters on drug-drug interactions in there. There's also links to third-party CE and CME. So if you're someone who's trying to get, you know, get more CE and CME out of it, get credit for it, uh, we have links that go out for that as well. So it's on our resources page. You know, in the end, what I always tell folks is that, listen, cannabinoids are here to stay. They're not going anywhere. <laughs> we, the, you know, as I said, horses mm -hmm. left the barn. So learning more about them and the science behind them is important. And I hope this is just what we had today. Our conversation today is, is an opportunity to kind of add to that but continue learning because at the end of the day, having an educated discussion is what's going to lead to an educated decision. And I want all of us to be empowered with education to make that right educated decision. But what we're going to do with these cannabinoids and how we're going to use them. That's amazing. I want to say thank you to Melissa for your question. And I hope this conversation helped you make a better and informed consumer of CBD products and other products as well. And Tree, thank you so much. What an amazing, you do a very good job taking very complex matters and <laughs> making them in a way that people can understand. That is why they have you as an educational director. I'm, um, I'm thrilled. I really appreciate that. It's been, um, you know, educational, um, informative, and uh, definitely support uh, FDA approval pro process for medications. Thank you, Doctor. I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you again, and 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 I appreciate the opportunity for listeners. Um, again, and, and uh, you know, any way I can help to generate more education, I'm always happy. But uh, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support of our sponsor. A sincere and warm thank you to Isaac, the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis, doctors educating on the harms of marijuana. Visit isaacone.org, that's I-A-S-I-C-1.org, to view their library that translates medical journals for public understanding, listen to their speaker series, and follow the science on marijuana. High Truth producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions. I'm your host, Dr. Oni Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more High Truths.